In The Adventure of the Veiled Lodger, one of the last stories about Sherlock Holmes written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Holmes is called to the home of a reclusive woman who has a secret burden she wishes to set down before she dies. The memory of a long-ago crime. Neither the police nor the clergy appeal to her as confessors, but she thinks that a private detective will understand. Holmes and Watson hear her story and are about to depart, but she says with a certain emphasis, the case is closed. And Holmes, in Doyle's words, turns swiftly upon her. Your life is not your own, he says. Keep your hands off it. His intuition turns out to be correct, of course. He's Sherlock Holmes. She was thinking of suicide, and the next day she sends him her temptation, a bottle of poison, and declares her intention to follow his advice. Sherlock Holmes, who seldom has an admiring word to say for a woman, tells Watson how brave he thinks she is. Her suffering is great and has been for many years. Her face was mauled terribly by a lion and she has hidden it and herself from view ever since. She's serving a sentence of loneliness imposed by herself and by a society that pays too much attention to a woman's physical appearance and imposed by the absence of any kind of remedy like surgery such as we have today. So when Holmes makes this extraordinary claim that her life is not her own, she demands of him, what use is it to anyone? He responds with his own question. How can you tell? Perhaps her patient's suffering is itself a redemptive message for others, he speculates. We live in a time when we believe firmly that each person's life is their own, and that is a hard one and important truth. Of course, ultimately, we must each have control over what we, what we each do with our bodies and with our lives. And I wish to be clear, because I am speaking, um, as Hecht is the author of Stay, I'm speaking of suicide. I want to be clear that this is all said from a profound sense of empathy with those who have come to the brink of suicide or have gone over it. None of it is meant to judge anybody, much less condemn them. And none of it addresses such issues as end of life management, where someone facing an inevitable and painful end might choose a different way to make their final exit. I'm in agreement with Hecht that that maybe is not even properly termed suicide. But like Jennifer Michael Hecht and some of the thinkers that she brings to our attention in her, her very wise book, I'm looking for life-giving alternatives. Alternatives that have not always been clear in a culture that has come to worship individualism and see 
few alternatives to it. And one alternative is to consider that our individualism, despite its many merits, can also be a dead end, literally, and that there are other ways of thinking of the value of our lives. Hecht, who is a poet and a historian of, society, of science, took a rather different um, direction than her usual scholarship in this book, Stay, which is subtitled A History of Suicide and the Philosophies Against It. When she, she says history, it's actually mostly a history of these thoughts in Western Europe. I would have liked to see an exploration of, for example, Japanese thought, where there is a long tradition of struggling with exactly when um, suicide is uh, wise, prudent, kind, unkind, the right or wrong thing to do. But given the limitations of her scholarship, I um, am very grateful for the way that she takes us up through history to the problem that we face. Um, especially those of us with more secular turns of mind, of hyper-individualism. This afflicts us in many ways, from people asserting that, hey, they can pour toxic chemicals onto the land that they have bought and paid for, it's their land, to others expressing a sense of martyrdom because of the social pressure to be vaccinated against COVID or anything else. Suicide is just one ex example of how this individualism plays out and can hurt us, hurt us and those we love and our communities. And that's the example I would like to stay with today. She talks about how for a long time, Western Europe basically had one argument against suicide. God abhors it. There was a firm religious prohibition against suicide in Catholicism and then in Protestantism when it, it arose. There was a, a strong sense that God not only would punish suicide, but that we should punish suicide after somebody's death. Or if they survived a suicide attempt, they would be prosecuted as criminals and sinners. And to further deter them from any thought of suicide, um, we should punish uh, their survivors, their family members, with loss of property, with social shame. There's even a long tradition of desecrating the corpses of those who killed themselves, and of course, denying them a place in consecrated ground by a churchyard. The Religious teachings against suicide were so powerful that some in, in uh, Christian history in Western Europe even say that of Judas's two final actions, the betrayal of Jesus and then his suicide from remorse about it, the suicide was the greater crime and the greater sin. Now, we can understand with some sympathy that the church warned against suicide in an attempt to save people's lives. But it had some terrible consequences. Um, first of all, the cruelty uh, against suffering spirits, people who struggled with what we now recognize to be depression and other mental illnesses, people who had suffered trauma, people who struggled with questions of why to go on, that sometimes the church could offer them nothing except a worse punishment 
than the life they were currently enduring. Then along came some alternatives. And I'll use Hecht's words here to speak of one of the movements that brought us Unitarian Universalists, the United States, our modern Western civilization, other ways of thinking besides this God-centric and highly punitive way of looking at life and death. The Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, Hecht says, enhanced the value of the self above that of community and tradition and made of each person an independent being. Okay, that's a wonderful thing to do as opposed to you're just a cog in a divine machine and, and you must just carry out um, your life even when you don't see any meaning in it because God insists upon it and will punish you otherwise. But as she goes on to say, some Enlightenment thinkers sometimes advocated the right to suicide so vociferously that they can be said to be recommending suicide thus built right into the world's most momentum, momentous revolution about the value of average individual human beings was a mechanism by which they were invited to judge their own lives, possibly to find them without value or worth, and to end them. We know the pain of suicide here at UUCPA. Just this year, a long-term, long-time member, Diane Meyer, took her own life, leaving her family and friends, fellow singers in the choir and ministers to grieve her loss. If you knew Diane, you know what a cost suicide exacts from those who survive. And if you didn't, if you are this moment racking your brain to remember what face went with that familiar name, or you're new and you never heard of Diane at all, I assure you, you're paying the cost as well. You will never have a conversation with that fascinating and loving and engaged person. You will never hear her voice in the choir. You will never be in a small group with her. You don't even know the ways that you have lost out, but you have, as we have all lost out by the deaths of people we never met. As our hymn says, a, a hymn we will sing shortly, family and friends and even strangers show us who we are. We learn about ourselves from one another. Other people shape our world. Or as John Donne said 500 years ago in language that's gendered but still beautifully eloquent, no man is an island entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thine own or of thine friends were. Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. What does that mean for suicide? For our right to control whether we live or die? 
not our legal right, but our moral right. Hecht spends some time with Dunn because he was as steeped in religious tradition as one can be, yet he articulated a reason to live that did not rely upon Christian doctrine, but was a humanistic argument. Dunn was a priest in the Anglican church. Perhaps this is why he felt he needed to give another argument for the value of each life. He saw how punitive the church's reasons were, and he saw other reasons, kinder and for many more persuasive arguments against ending our own lives. He said in those most beautiful words, words that have resounded and echoed through these 500 years, your life matters. 400 years. He's old, but not that old. Your life matters for 400 years. We've known that to be true. It matters for its own sake. Not to evade God's punishment. And it matters for others' sake in ways that may be obvious or may be hidden. We here, we inheritors of the Enlightenment, are rebels against punitive religion. We're inheritors of the liberal political tradition and liberal social tradition that says the individual is supreme and has inalienable rights. And this puts us, like Dunn, in a position of particular responsibility. If we can articulate the reasons that our lives are not only our own, then maybe we can offer a path that others may follow. And we can raise our voices with particular authority. Those who don't passionately value individual liberty are easily dismissed, but those of us who do, those of us who do say, you have a right to control your own life. We command attention when we say, and yet, we also each have a responsibility to each other. In our time, communitarian voices have risen to guide us. One contemporary one is Amitai Etzioni, who acknowledges the dangers of the philosophy of communitarianism, the dangers of giving too little weight to individual freedom. Authoritarian communism, he says, I'm sorry, authoritarian communitarians, that's hard to say although it rhymes, authoritarian communitarians privilege the common good to the point where they are willing to sacrifice individual rights and they view the person as an organic cell of the body society. The person's import, hence, is basically in his or her contribution to the common good. But responsive communitarians, the school of thought that Etzioni belongs to, take it as their starting point that we face two basic normative claims, two claims based on our moral standards, neither of which is privileged, the common good and the individual rights. Responsive 
communitarians further hold that each society must work out the balance between these two major claims. That's Amitai Etzioni. They are a balance. The Enlightenment and its thinkers and inheritors such as us helped to bring that balance, but sometimes in their in their strong reaction to and their and their rootedness in a very God-focused and a particular narrow theology, they could not think of any other reason why one might live other than the one that had been given to them. God insists upon it. When that was taken away, they didn't know what to say. And so at the moment, and for a long time, we have been out of balance. We have so lost sight of the common good. We have lost sight of our interdependence. And yet, we gathered here know that interdependence is a fact. It is explicitly expressed in our principles, which call us to affirm and promote respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Do we really believe that others depend upon us? Or do we only think that we depend on others? Because both are true. Afflictions such as depression and anxiety make it particularly difficult to perceive that others depend upon us. They tell us the lie that nobody cares whether we live or die. But they do. And even more, the fact of that interdependence can itself save us from the deadly grasp of these ailments. Not to downplay the very real chemical causes of suicidal feeling, the family dynamics, the effect of trauma, and so on. But these being the causes of suicidal thought doesn't spell out necessarily what the remedies are. And one remedy is to know that we matter to others. One voice that uh, Hecht le lifts up, one of, the, um, one of the thinkers in our Western tradition who does articulate a reason to live is um, the sociologist Emile Durkheim who wrote a book called On Suicide. She says, for most of people's lives, in Durkheim's way of thinking, nothing draws them out of themselves and instills restraint on them. People cannot become attached to higher aims if they do not feel they belong to anything. Thus, for Durkheim, freeing people from all social pressure abandons them to themselves, abandons us to ourselves and to sorrow. So it seems that for people sensitive to melancholia, or as we might say today in our more psychotherapeutic world, depression, some kind of deeper sense of belonging is necessary 
though difficult. When we know that we belong, we know not only that others matter to us, but that we matter to others. That we are a part of an ecosystem that needs us. That needs us to persevere if we can, even when we can't see how. Even when we can't see how to persevere and even when we can't see why. I'm glad we are turning away from the expression committing suicide. I don't like it. It makes suicide sound like a crime or a sin. Another expression, take one's own life, is gentler and fairer. And it conveys that powerful sense felt by those of us who are left to live without the person we care about, that something has been taken from us, as it has, irrevocably, and without our consent. To take life, to murder, in this case, to murder oneself. If we have a right to anything, it is a right to decide what becomes of our bodies and our lives. And yet, this phrase, take one's own life, also points to something that is not quite completely true. With that little, little word, own. Our lives, as Arthur Conan Doyle said, through his detective, are not our own. Not only. We also belong to each other. Childless people are more likely to kill themselves than people with children. This could be due to factors such as children making one more happy, but I think the more compelling factor is probably responsibility. Parents know that they belong to someone else. They know that there is someone who will be devastated by their death. They know they are not entirely their own. This is true of all of us, but we forget. It's hard to remember in a culture that so values individualism. We're supposed to make it on our own. We're supposed to stand on our own two feet. We're supposed to be beholden to nobody, owe nothing to anybody. Maybe this is also a contributor to the higher rate of suicide among men in our country. The individualistic myth is such a central part of our culture's dominant version of masculinity. And it is a myth. Perhaps we could use that. Hecht says that when she addresses crowds, um, when she gives lectures about this plea of hers to please stay, people come up to her afterwards and say, I know what you mean about young people. It's so terrible when teens choose suicide. They, they have so, so much ahead of them, and, and they, they mean so much to so many people, they're poor families, their parents will never recover. And she says, what about everybody else? Yes, it's true of teenagers. But can you think of anybody who will not be mourned? Can you think of anybody who doesn't have a future self, who might look back if they survive this bout of suicidal feeling and say, I am so glad 
I am so glad that my past self did not choose suicide. She says, don't we owe it to our future selves and don't we owe it to the circle of concern around us to hang in there. Perhaps we could make a pact with one another. It's hard. Sometimes life is very hard, but I will persevere if you do. As Thich Nhat Hanh proposes, we speak of being, but a truer expression of our situation might be interbeing. He writes, isn't it obvious that we inter-are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer. I think we hesitate to say this to people who are contemplating suicide. We hesitate to say, you have to stay alive for my sake, for your children's sake. We don't want to say to somebody who's suffering, you have to do something for me, still less for a stranger. It feels perhaps like we're adding an intolerable burden to shoulders that are already barely holding the weight of the world. But there are two benefits to reminding ourselves and reminding others that people do need us to survive. The first is that it's true. I won't go here into the details of the phenomenon of suicide contagion, which Hecht documents with care, that one suicide literally makes it more likely for another to occur. But beyond that, in a positive sense, our courage encourages others to persevere, to find hope and connection, and know that their lives are worthy, even in those moments when it's hard to feel that the next step is possible or worthwhile. And our loss burdens everyone who cares about us, even those who have only barely heard of us, with yet one more grief that they must carry. Who here has not been touched by another's suicide? I dare say no one who is hearing my words is thinking, I haven't, unless they are very young. We cannot escape the fact that when we take our own lives, our own lives, we hurt other living beings. The second benefit of reminding ourselves, even when we're grappling with suicidal feelings, especially then, that others need us. The second benefit of reminding others that others need them is this. Paradoxical though it may seem, that responsibility is a gift, as Durkheim explored. We need a sense of purpose and connection. Far from being driven out of the world by the obligations of reciprocity, for most of us, they draw us deeper into it. Not as a burden, but as a, as a gift. I matter to other people. As the veiled lodger 
says to Holmes, what use is my life to anybody? Is that not what we need to know, that our life is of use, that we matter, even to strangers? Knowing it does not make depression and despair disappear. The journey back to life from those dark pits can be a hard, dark climb. But that connection offers a strong rope to hold on to. And the promise of light and love at the end of it. Let us offer it to one another and let us take tight hold. So may it be.